This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end of the year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you. The FBI and others within both USAG and USOPC knew that Nasser molested children and did nothing to restrict his access. The right wing of whatever stripe, they're basically rejecting the liberal consensus. The liberal consensus being that when the United States was forced to move away from Jim Crow, for example, in the 1950s and 1960s, this in some ways was an extension of the Constitution of 1776, whereas the right wing is saying, hell no. The point is not the money. The point is, what does it mean to, for us to live lives where we thrive? Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. As always, I have a jam-packed show, including on the 20 years since the attacks of 9-11 that have brought us to these days, which perhaps author Chris Hedges would describe as days of destruction, days of revolt. While much of corporate media marked the 20th anniversary of 9-11 with a replay of the carnage and horror of that day, for activists fighting on a variety of fronts, the grim anniversary marks even more, like the 20 years of criminal war against the people of Afghanistan, which just officially ended, but not really. Or some mark how 9-11 was used as an opportunity to ramp up the police and surveillance state here at home through laws like the Patriot Act. And some of us mark that horrible toll of millions killed all around the world, including U.S. citizen Anwar al-Awlaki, only suspected of terrorist links, but executed in Yemen in 2011 with a missile strike by the U.S. without due process. Two weeks later, his 16-year-old American son, Abdul Rahman, was also killed with a missile while eating at an outdoor restaurant in Yemen. Six years later, al-Awlaki's eight-year-old daughter was also killed by the U.S. These are the types of crimes of empire invoked by activists who gathered in front of the White House Sunday, September 12th, 
for the launch of the Cut the Pentagon campaign, organized by Code Pink, Women for Peace, with the Answer Coalition. The centerpiece of the action was a cake more than four feet wide in the shape of the Pentagon building, which was cut and served in slices to attendees. Organizers cited the recent report from the Cost of War Project, revealing that the U.S. has spent $21 trillion so far on the so-called war on terror, rather than on human needs at home, as the country suffers with crumbling infrastructure and with crises in healthcare, jobs, and housing during the COVID-19 pandemic. Activist Afeni of the group Freedom Fighters DC spoke to the crowd about the links between U.S. militarism and unmet needs here at home. If they can spend $300 million per day in Afghanistan, they can invest $20 billion to house everybody. That's a one-time investment. They can invest in a universal anti-racist healthcare system so black women like myself don't die on delivery tables. They can invest in that. They have the money for that. So because we know they have the money for that, we're going to demand that they give us our money back and invest it back into our community. While activists may be reflective about 20 years of militarism, the Biden administration is moving full steam ahead in its further military provocations against China. This week, it formally launched a new military alliance with Australia and the UK called AUKUS. One of the first acts of this new alliance involved Australia scrapping a $66 billion deal with France for conventional submarines and agreeing instead to buy U.S. nuclear-powered submarines that are supposed to be more difficult to detect. This contract cancellation infuriated France, which abruptly canceled a gala scheduled to celebrate friendship with the U.S. More on international news later in the show with historian Gerald Horn. Meanwhile, closer to home, the focus is also on protection. In advance of the September 18th far-right rally in support of January 6th rioters, temporary fencing has been reinstalled around the U.S. Capitol, and a man, Donald Craighead, 44, of Oceanside, California, was arrested with a bayonet, machete, and white supremacist paraphernalia near the Democratic National Committee. An event to oppose the J6 action is planned for September 18th by several organizations here in D.C., starting at 12 noon at Freedom Plaza in Northwest D.C. Their event is called Dear Fascist Losers. D.C. means don't come. On Capitol Hill, the Senate Judiciary Committee heard chilling testimony this week from U.S. gymnasts about their sexual abuse at the hands of former team doctor Larry Nasser and the failure of the FBI, USA Gymnastics, and the United States Olympic Committee to protect hundreds of girls and young women from abuse. Chantel James has more. At a Senate hearing Wednesday, gymnasts testified to the abuse they suffered at the hands of Larry Nassar the USA Gymnastics doctor who abused as many as 120 women even after the FBI first heard of charges against him, Olympic gymnast Simone Biles, who inspired many by putting her mental health first during the recent Tokyo Olympics, urged that the entire system that allowed Nassar to continue his crimes for so long be held accountable. To be clear, I blame Larry Nassar, and I also blame... 
an entire system that enabled and perpetrated his abuse. USA Gymnastics and the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee knew that I was abused by their official team doctor long before I was ever made aware of their knowledge. In May of 2015, Rhonda Fayen, the former head of USA Gymnastics Women's Program, was told by my friend and teammate, Maggie Nichols, that she suspected I, too, was a victim. I didn't understand the magnitude of what all was happening until the Indianapolis Star published its article in the fall of 2016, entitled, Former USA Gymnastics Doctor Accused of Abuse. Yet while I was a member of the 2016 U.S. Olympic team, neither USAG, USOPC, nor the FBI ever contacted me or my parents. While others had been informed and investigations were ongoing, I had been left to wonder why I was not told until after the Rio Games. This is the largest case of sexual abuse in the history of American sport. And although there have been a fully independent investigation of the FBI's handling of the case, neither USAG nor USOPC have ever been made the subject of the same level of scrutiny. These are the entities entrusted with the protection of our sport and our athletes, and yet it feels like questions of responsibility and organizational failures remain unanswered. As you pursue the answers to those questions, I ask that your work be guided by the same question that Rachel Din Hollander and many others have asked. How much is a little girl worth? I sit before you today to raise my voice so that no little girl must endure what I, the athletes at this table, and the countless others who needlessly suffered under Nasser's guise of medical treatment, which we continue to endure today. We suffered and continue to suffer because no one at FBI, USAG, or the USOPC did what was necessary to protect us. We have been failed, and we deserve answers. Larry Nassar is currently serving up to 175 years in a U.S. penitentiary for decades of molestation. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. Also this week, it was announced that the city of Philadelphia will pay $2 million to Rakia Young, who was pulled from her car, beaten by cops, and had her toddler taken from her and used by police for a false social media post. Young was headed home last October when she unknowingly drove up to a large protest over the police killing of Walter Wallace Jr., As she tried to turn around, cops smashed out her windows with their batons, pulled her from the car, separating her from her toddler son and nephew, and several cops began violently attacking her. The Fraternal Order of Police then posted a photo with a female police officer holding young son with a caption that read, quote, this child was lost during the violent riots in Philadelphia wandering around barefoot in an area that was experiencing complete lawlessness. The only thing this Philadelphia police officer cared about in that moment was protecting this child, end quote. That post was later taken down. And according to local news reports, only two cops, an officer and a sergeant, have since been fired in connection to the incident. 
A federal judge on Thursday ordered the Biden administration to end a Trump-era policy of using the COVID-19 pandemic to justify swift deportation of migrant families. Asylum seekers and human rights advocates celebrated the ruling by U.S. District Court Judge Emmett Sullivan. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is facing strong condemnation for continuing deportations of Haitians while the country is still reeling from a deadly earthquake and back-to-back storms. On the labor front, workers are celebrating some victories. Thomas O'Rourke has the latest. Workers are celebrating recent victories both in the United States and Europe, including a tentative agreement on a new contract between striking Nabisco workers and Mondelez International, Nabisco's parent company. The September 14th announcement by Anthony Shelton, president of the Bakery, Confectionery, Tobacco Workers, and Grain Millers International Union, followed a more than month-long strike that spread to six plants in five states, a call for product boycotts around the slogan, No Contracts, No Snacks, also played a role in galvanizing worker resistance. Despite record profits made by Mondelez in 2020, the company provoked the strike with demands for big concessions, including making new hires, pay more for health insurance, and eliminating hard-won overtime and weekend pay premiums. Shelton said local union chapters will vote on the contract in the coming days. The United Mine Workers Union hailed a recent ruling from the NLRB agreeing with the union that Warrior Met Coal is not bargaining in good faith and threatening sanctions for noncompliance, including withholding information in ongoing bargaining talks. 1,100 coal miners have been on strike against Warrior Met Coal at its mine in Tuscaloosa County, Alabama, since April 1, demanding the reversal of the $1.1 billion in concessions foisted upon the miners back in 2016. The isolated miners have been subjected to violence, including multiple instances of vehicular assault, but have held on maintaining pickets. The cost to the company was reported at $7 million in the second quarter. Finally, train drivers and rail workers at the government-owned Deutsche Bahn Railway in Germany reached a deal with their union to end a series of recent strikes, with GDL union officials hailing the, quote, good compromise reached. This includes a pay raise for drivers of about 3.3% over 32 months, secured assurances over pensions, and two COVID-19 bonus payments. Beginning mid-August, three widespread, multi-day short strikes on Germany's railway network caused severe disruption and travel chaos across the country. For On the Ground, this is Thomas O'Rourke. In culture and media, pianist and composer Robert Glasper concludes a two-week residency at the Kennedy Center on September 19th. Glasper is closing out the residency with his Black Radio Project, which includes D-Smoke and special guests. Looking ahead, three days of national protests are planned for September 24th through the 26th to stop evictions and for Congress to pass an indefinite moratorium on evictions that covers 100% of the country. Organizers are calling for quicker distribution of already allocated renter relief funds and for Congress to cancel the rents and wipe out all rent and mortgage debt accumulated during the pandemic. You can get more information and get involved at cancelthereents.org. 
That's canceltherents.org. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. As most of you are probably aware, I was molested by the U.S. Gymnastics National Team and Olympic Team Doctor Larry Nassar. In an actuality, he turned out to be more of a pedophile than he was a doctor. What I'm trying to bring to your attention today is something incredibly disturbing and illegal. After telling my entire story of abuse to the FBI in the summer of 2015, not only did the FBI not report my abuse, but when they eventually documented my report 17 months later, they made entirely false claims about what I said. After reading the Office of Inspector General's OIG report, I was shocked and deeply disappointed at this narrative they chose to fabricate. They chose to lie about what I said and protect a serial child molester rather than protect not only me, but countless others. My story is one in which special agent in charge, Jay Abbott, and his subordinates did not want you to hear. And it's time that I tell you. In the summer of 2015, like I said, I was scheduled to speak to the FBI about my abuse with Larry Nassar over the phone. I was too sick to go meet with anyone in person, and talking about this abuse would give me PTSD for days. But I chose to speak about it to try and make a difference and protect others. I remember sitting on my bedroom floor for nearly three hours as I told them what happened to me. I hadn't even told my own mother about these facts, but I thought as uncomfortable and as hard as it was to tell my story, I was going to make a difference and hopefully protecting others from the same abuse. I answered all of their questions honestly and clearly, and I disclosed all of my molestations I had endured by NASAR to them in extreme detail. They told me to start from the beginning. I told them about the sport of gymnastics, how you make the national team, and how I came to meet Larry Nassar when I was 13 at a Texas camp. I told them that the first thing Larry Nassar ever said to me was to change into shorts with no underwear because that would make it easier for him to work on me. And within minutes, he had his fingers in my vagina. The FBI then immediately asked, did he insert his fingers into your rectum? I said, no, he never did. They asked if he used gloves. I said, no, he never did. They asked if this treatment ever helped me. I said, no, it never did. This treatment was 100% abuse and never gave me any relief. I then told the FBI about Tokyo the day he gave me a sleeping pill for the plane ride to then work on me later that night. That evening, I was naked, completely alone, with him on top of me, molesting me for hours. I told them I thought I was going to die that night because there was no way that he would let me go. But he did. I told them I walked the halls of Tokyo Hotel at 2 a.m. at only 15 years old. 
I began crying at the memory over the phone, and there was just dead silence. I was so shocked at the agent's silence and disregard for my trauma. After that minute of silence, he asked, is that all? Those words in itself was one of the worst moments of this entire process for me. To have my abuse be minimized and disregarded by the people who were supposed to protect me, just to feel like my abuse was not enough. But the truth is, my abuse was enough, and they wanted to cover it up. USA Gymnastics, in in concert with the FBI and the Olympic Committee, were working together to conceal that Larry Nassar was a predator. I then proceeded to tell them about London and how he'd signed me up last on his sheet so he could molest me for hours twice a day. I told him, I told them how he molested me right before I won my team gold medal. How he gave me presents, bought me caramel macchiatos and bread when I was hungry. I even sent them screenshots of Nassar's last text to me, which was, Michaela, I love how you see the world with rose-colored glasses. I hope you continue to do so. This was very clear, cookie-cutter pedophilia and abuse. And this is important because I told the FBI all of this. And they chose to falsify my report and to not only minimize my abuse, but silence me yet again. I thought, given the severity of this situation, that they would act quickly for the sake of protecting other girls. But instead, it took them 14 months to report anything when Larry Nassar, in my opinion, should have been in jail that day. The FBI, USOC, and USAG sat idly by as dozens of girls and women continued to be molested by Larry Nassar. According to the OIG report, about 14 months after I disclosed my abuse to the FBI, nearly a year and a half later, the FBI agent who interviewed me in 2015 decided to write down my statement, a statement that the OIG report determined to be materially false. Let's be honest. By not taking immediate action from my report, they allowed a child molester to go free for more than a year. And this inaction directly allowed Nassar's abuse to continue. What is the point of reporting abuse if our own FBI agents are going to take it upon themselves to bury that report in a drawer? They had legal, legitimate evidence of child abuse and did nothing If they're not going to protect me, I want to know who are they trying to protect? What's even more upsetting to me is that we know that these FBI agents have committed an obvious crime. They falsified my statement, and that is illegal in itself. Yet no recourse has been taken against them. The Department of Justice refused to prosecute these individuals. Why? Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco couldn't even bring herself to be here today, and it is the Department of Justice's job to hold them accountable. I am tired of waiting for people to do the right thing, because my abuse was enough, and we deserve justice. These individuals clearly violated policies and were negligent in executing their duties, and in doing so, more girls were abused by Larry Nassar for over a year. To not indict these agents is a disservice to me and my teammates. It is a disservice to the system which was built to protect all of us from abuse. It was a disservice to every victim who suffered needlessly at the hands of Larry Nassar after I spoke up. Why are public servants whose job is to protect getting away with this? This is not justice. 
Enough is enough. Today, I ask you all to hear my voice. I ask you, please do all that is in your power to ensure that these individuals are held responsible and accountable for ignoring my initial report, for lying about my initial report, and for covering up for a child molester. That was U.S. gymnast Michaela Maroney speaking before the Senate Judiciary Committee on Wednesday, September 15th, 2021. This is On the Ground. I'm Esther Averam. Stay with us. Now I'm joined by a friend of the show, longtime activist and author Makani Temba, chief strategist at Higher Ground Change Strategies based in Jackson, Mississippi. Welcome back to the show, Makani. Always great to be here. Thank you. Well, this week I am dealing with this convergence of issues. In terms of our headlines, we have in Philadelphia a $2 million settlement for a woman, Rakia Young who was attacked by the Philadelphia police when she made a wrong turn near a Black Lives Matter protest. Her car's windows were smashed. She was pulled out of the car and beaten. Uh, Her child was kidnapped by the police, uh, who, who later claimed that they found the child wandering the streets unattended during the protests. And a photo op was taken with the child as if they were rescuing this Black child from this the Black Lives Matter mob. We have the really chilling and just horrific uh, testimony from these young women who were gymnasts here, who testified not only about the abuse that they experienced at the hands of former Olympics uh, physician Larry Nasser, but really of the utter abdication of responsibility by the FBI in terms of investigating their cases and in protecting them against this abuser who went on to abuse at least a hundred more girls and young women before he was finally arrested. And then right now in D.C., we have the kickoff of a defund the Pentagon campaign, which is pointing out 20 years after 9-11, the $20 trillion spent in the so-called war on terror. So I just thought that you were the perfect person to really pull these issues together. I know I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but I wanted to get your top line thoughts about all that is happening this week. Yeah, it's a lot. and. I think it's really important, and you're right, these things are are issues that we should be considering together as part of a whole, right? And I mean, first of all, my heart just goes out to Miss Young and and her family. I mean, what an awful thing to go through and how awful it is for all of us, you know, as Black people, as people who care, for this to be kind of a regular thing, right? You know, just think about the trauma we're all holding. I have to say, I was, I was completely disgusted and saddened by even the response to her settlement. You know, where where I was reading in in some pieces where folks were talking about this was a significant amount of money for her and a life changing amount of money for her. I think is the term they use, and then tried to say that what happened to her was 
equally life-changing as if $2 million and what happened to her were, were somehow equal. Like that, right. like, like she was lucky, <laughs> like basically like, like, you know, and, and, and I think I was really struck by, the, you know, that, that folks can continue with all the work and all the framing and all the efforts to miss the point. You know, mm-hmm. the point is mm-hmm. not the money. The point is, what does it mean to for us to live lives where we thrive, where our resources are allocated in a way that benefits us? And what we saw across the board with, you know, the, the case of, you know, as you talked about in Philly, and then what the FBI failed to do to protect these women, um, you know, around something that they knew was wrong, right? So it's like, what does how does the system work? Who does it actually benefit? Why are we spending all this money in so-called defense, whether it's defense for, you know, supposedly our nation, de- defense for, uh, you know, what, you know, people call policing to, you know, an, an, an agency like the FBI, which if you don't see it as your job to protect young women from being abused, then what are you there for? And so I think, I hope that people can look at this and really see that these systems of of policing, these systems of so-called defense don't really work in our interests. This is not how the resources should be allocated. This is a, this is a system that's essentially about, you know, reinforcing patriarchy and reinforcing racism and reinforcing white sociopathy and, and so it, it gives us it's another opportunity to look at this. But more importantly, think about and which I think is what's so exciting about the defund the Pentagon, as well as defund policing is what do we really need? What really protects us? What does safety really mean in our lives? And how should our resources, our public dollars be expended so that we're truly safe here and abroad? Exactly. So there were two things that I thought about, and I know I know you don't have a lot of time, but in terms of the money and how people reacted to the case in Philadelphia, it's also the same disgusting way I've I've heard it framed when families win win monetary settlements after the murder of their relatives. Exactly. So exactly. as if oh they won the lotto, they won the murder lotto, so that they. Re- they receive this money and it's so disgusting and so horrible. It's just another way of devaluing black life. And I'm glad you mentioned defund the police because since the so-called war on terror began and since nine 11, the FBI's budget has more than doubled. I don't have the figures right. right in front of me, but I was in a conversation earlier this week about that. And when you talk about cases like the Newburgh four, where they, they actually had an FBI agent or informant frame these four black men, <laughs> And, and actually plan a terror plot and then blame them for it. Or you have other instances where the FBI has been involved in not solving crimes or actually coming to the aid and to support these young women in cases like this, but rather going out and creating these other surveillance systems on Muslims and in our communities for the past 20 years, we really see where the money is going and it's not to protect us. That's exactly right. We're in a place where I think we're the smartest we've ever been in in terms of the ecosystem. I'm so proud 
of the folks organizing who are really on the front lines around the defund the police movement. Folks on the ground all over this country have moved nearly a billion dollars out of police budgets. And, and as you know, um, you said a million, did you say a million, almost a billion with a B almost a billion with a B now, of course, you know, police get a lot of money. So, you know, that's, you know, like people used to say back in the day, that's about 20 pounds off of Barry White, but we got work, you know, there's work to do, right. There's work to do, but still significant because I Mm -hmm. think people are finally realizing that this is not what keeps us safe. This is not even what prevents crime. We know what to do. And one of the things we also saw post 9-11 is the increase of sort of the militarization and weaponry of police, you know, beyond guns, right, to all kinds of ways to survey us domestically and really limited investment in the kinds of things that help us be safe abroad in terms of how we build cooperation, how we work you know, work in collaboration with nation governments to make sure people have food and, you know, the things that create unrest in the first place. And so I'm hoping that as we're looking at this 20th anniversary, we're looking at these movements that are once again bringing up for us, you know, the, the, the heavy price we all pay for militarism and the heavy price we all pay when our community doesn't get the kinds of investments that we need and the heavy price we all pay when our tax dollars are really wasted, right? To line the pockets of of a few folks who make a lot of money while the rest of us really struggle. And I think, and I'm hoping that more and more people will wake up to that, you know, sort of put down the the sort of flag waving and, and un, um, sort of unquestioning patriotism and think about it. I know that's none of the folks who are listening to this show, but maybe our relatives, right? Um, that we can we can begin to have a different kind of conversation about safety in every aspect of our lives, what really keeps us safe and, and how we might dream together to do something different. And what I'm really proud of is how there are folks all around this country who are playing with that, who are dreaming about this, who are doing tremendous, important work to look at alternative systems of safety. And I think that's where, that's where we need to be. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, while much of corporate media marked the 20th anniversary of the attacks of 9-11 with a replay of the carnage and horror of that day, for activists fighting on a variety of fronts, 
the grim anniversary marks so much more, like the 20 years of criminal war against the people of Afghanistan, which just officially ended, but not really. Or some mark how 9-11 was used as an opportunity to ramp up the police and surveillance state here at home through laws like the Patriot Act. Or we mark the $21 trillion the U.S. has spent on the so-called war on terror rather than on human needs at home as the country suffers with crumbling infrastructure and with crises in healthcare, childcare, housing, and food in the middle of a pandemic. Well, joining me for our discussion on the 20th anniversary of 9-11 is On the Ground's geopolitical analyst, Gerald Horn, the Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston, His more than three dozen books include Race for the Planet, The U.S. and the New World Order, and Blows Against the Empire, U.S. Imperialism in Crisis. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. Well, of course, I'm always excited when you can join me on the show. Now, this discussion is also coinciding, as you know, with the third week of the month when we tried to continue our long-running segment, The F-Word on Fascism. And though I already mentioned one dichotomy for how the 9-11 anniversary is analyzed and discussed, I'm also confronted with how this anniversary reveals a schism among the 1% and the politicians and bureaucrats doing their bidding. So on the one hand, with attacks on seven Muslim countries over the past 20 years, war crimes, torture at various U.S. bases like at Bagram in Afghanistan, black sites, and at Guantanamo, the deaths of millions of Afghans, Iraqis, Syrians, Libyans, Yemenis, and $7 trillion into the pockets of just five war profiteers or corporations, I would be hard-pressed not to call this fascism on a global scale. But just this week, perpetrators of that global fascist order, like former CIA head Gina Haspel or former President George Bush, are quoted warning how Trump or his followers during the January 6th attack on the Capitol are the real fascist threat. That Trump was determined to stage a coup and lead the U.S. further down the path of authoritarianism. So I know that's a lot, but what do you make of these like dueling narratives and didn't the last 20 years lead us to a naked like dictator wannabe like Trump? Well, that's a fair point. And I should also point listeners to a column in the New York Times by Jamel Bowie, where he sought to introduce George W. Bush 2021 to George W. Bush 2001. In other words, he was trying to suggest that George W. Bush 2001 uh, led us directly to this threat of impending fascism that we're now facing by his warmongering, his bellicosity, etc. But I would also point you to another column in the New York Times by the conservative columnist Kevin Williamson of the National Review, where he suggested that January 6th was one of the first of many attempted coups we should expect in this country going forward over the next decade or so. In some ways, what's being suggested is that the right wing has turned Che Guevara on its head. Recall how during the height of the National Liberation War in Vietnam, uh, Che called for one, two, three, many National Liberation Wars. Well, now the right wing in its hardcore fashion is calling for one, two, three, many coup attempts until 
the right wing seizes what they feel is rightfully theirs. Uh, that is to say, a state power which involves voter suppression and all of the rest. I should also take this opportunity to point out that the recent failed recall of the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, could be seen as another failed coup attempt insofar as Mr. Newsom could have gotten 49.9% of the vote and still have been recalled by a, quote, victor, unquote, who received uh, the plurality, which could have been as little as 2.2% of the vote. Now, if that's not anti-democracy, I don't know what is. And speaking of which, we should also mention 918, what's going to unfold in Washington on September 18th, where there will be a rally for those detained on January 6th. The FBI is telling us that there's nothing to worry about or move along, but that's what they told us on January 6th. So we shall see. Right. We shall see. And uh, as Chantel James, one of our contributors, reported this week, some who in D.C. are saying that D.C. stands for don't come. So people are really onto people do not come here. But I'm really struck by how the same reporters like the disgraced Brian Williams on MSNBC, who praised Trump for finally being presidential when he bombed Syria, now say they are frightened over revelations that Trump was possibly trying to stage a coup or start a war to distract from his election loss. Bob Woodward and Robert Costa, you know, their book is all the rage and all the the breaking news here in D.C. this week. They write that when Trump refused to concede in November 2020, a former CIA head, Gina Haspel, when she was CIA head at that time, warned Mark Milley, the Joint Chief of Staff, that, quote, we are on the way to a right-wing coup. The whole thing is insanity. He is acting out like a six-year-old with a tantrum. This is a highly dangerous situation, end quote. And mind you, this is said by Gina Haspel, dubbed Bloody Gina, like for her role in torture, you know, at the CIA during the past 20 years. So that just goes to bolster what I asked before. I just see these two narratives of these monsters pointing to each other, you know, and saying, you know, you're a monster. No, you're the monster. You know, meanwhile, you have these right-wing hosts on Fox News and other outlets saying that Millie should be fired or that he should resign because he supposedly committed treason by reassuring China, which was alarmed by the January 6th attack, apparently, that the U.S. government was stable and that Trump was not going to be allowed to attack them in a sort of wag the dog scenario. So all of this is going on right now as Washington braces for the far-right justice for J6 rally that you just mentioned. In many ways, it feels to me like we are back in the same fraught, you know, kind of ideological space that we were in back on January 6th or leading up to January 6th. And then you have Trump's buddy Jair Bolsonaro trying similar tactics in Brazil. So I'm wondering, you know, what, what lessons from history do you bring to this moment? You know, as a historian who's like just looked at at not only, you know, fascist movements, but movements around settler colonialism and the many ways that fascism has manifested itself in history. What, what are some of the lessons you bring to this moment? Well, first, a contemporary point, which is that the right wing media is now beating the drums by suggesting that Chinese warships are nearing Hawaii, uh, 
which is quite concerning that that kind of reporting is still going on. But with regard to the history, I think that the right wing of whatever stripe, they're basically rejecting the liberal consensus. The liberal consensus being that when the United States was forced to move away from Jim Crow, for example, in the 1950s and 1960s, this in some ways was an extension of the Constitution of 1776, whereas the right wing is saying, hell no, that their ancestors were the ones who spearheaded the genocide against the Native Americans, which led to ethnic cleansing and clearing the land for an invasion of European settlers and the subsequent enslavement of the Africans. And they're trying to reclaim what they think is to be rightfully theirs, which is to say a state power forevermore. They see themselves as the natural party of power, which is one of the reasons you keep having these anti-democratic maneuvers, such as the failed right-wing recall of Gavin Newsom in California, with more on the way, I'm afraid to say. Well, well also in terms of the, I guess what I asked in the beginning, when I talked about how corporations are really the ones who like made out like bandits during the past 20 years, I want to play a clip from the Cut the Pentagon rally that was held here on Sunday. I just want to just get into the idea of the, the money spent during the last 20 years and how more and more Americans are just kind of waking up to the fact that these are our tax dollars being used in these wars and now in these hybrid wars. We are literally standing in the middle of a pandemic and we're still arguing about what we should and should not be investigating. We're still asking, demanding health care when that should not be something we have to organize around. But yet here we are. They don't have to organize when they want to bomb Iran and when they want to bomb Somalia. They don't they don't have to do a mass action. They just decide to do that with our tax dollars. That's right. <laughs> like, that's our money. That goes into destroying other countries, that goes into disrupting governments that honestly just treat those citizens better than we treat ours. So that was a, a Feeney from a local Black Lives Matter group called Freedom Fighters. And she just goes on to just really make the argument about the war profiteers and corporations making all this money off of death and destruction versus human needs. From where you sit, not only from the the university level, but just in terms of Texas, which we could probably devote a whole show to, do, do you see more Americans kind of having that consciousness, or you know, where where does that consciousness fit into the the right wing insurgency? A lot of those people consider themselves populists. A lot of them argue for use of money for human needs, but do they just mean money for white people, or what? Well, there's good news and bad news. <laughs> the good news is that there is now a new cut the Pentagon budget caucus, as I understand it, spearheaded by Congresswoman Barbara Lee of Oakland, Berkeley, the sole congressperson who in 2001 voted against uh, authorizing the move towards war in Afghanistan and backed up by Mark Pocan of Wisconsin. Now, of course, she's from Berkeley, he's from Madison, so I'm not sure how broad that caucus is going to be. At the same time, uh, you just mentioned Texas. It's difficult 
for me to paint a positive picture of Texas as it's hurtling back to the 19th century with voter suppression, with squashing women's reproductive rights, with making it easier to carry handguns in the street. And I think Texas is also building its own border (laughs) fence. They cut money for contact tracing, but put lots of money into building your own border wall and more money to send state police to the border. So lots of stuff happening in Texas. And I think what outsiders don't realize about Texas is that Governor Greg Abbott, the Republican who spearheaded all these moves to the right, in the Republican Party, he's seen as a dangerous moderate. In fact, he's facing a primary challenge from what could be called the fascist right and very well may lose. On the other hand, uh, in California, where you saw once again this attempt by the right wing to recall the governor, it failed miserably. And let's hope that that's an auguring of the future. So I also wanted to kind of talk about what has been actual hot war or wars and attacks during the past 20 years and what are hybrid wars now. Uh, In addition to the cut the Pentagon protests this week, there was another uh, protest to call for the freedom of Venezuelan diplomat Alex Saab. And a lot of people don't know his story. He's a Venezuelan who was working to maintain the stream of food packages that are given to all Venezuelans that help Venezuelans to withstand this illegal economic sanctions and blockade on the country so that every Venezuelan family can get this package of food, basic staples that can carry them through the month. And because of that effort, he's been targeted by the United States and basically consigned to a black site in Cape Verde off of the coast of Africa. So when I look at uh, these two protests and when I look at just the ongoing the continuation by the Biden administration of so many Trump's foreign policies, I'm hard pressed to say that anything's really changed. If, if anything, when we look at Cuba, things have gotten worse. And as I think we mentioned before on the show, there seems to be more stepped up pressure to perhaps attack Cuba. So, so how does that fit into your reading of the moment? Well, when I read the stories about the Mr. Saab, my mind immediately reeled back to the heyday of Guinea-Bissau and Cape Verde, who helped to produce one of Africa's leading revolutionaries and intellectuals, speaking of Amelcar Cabral, who was murdered about a half century ago. And I'm afraid to say there's been a kind of decline in that country since then, as represented by the detention of Mr. Saab. But it's also quite dangerous because it's not a singular event. Think of the daughter of the founder of Huawei, the Chinese telecommunications giant, who's been detained a couple of years in Vancouver, British Columbia, because she's fighting extradition to the United States, supposedly because Huawei violated U.S. sanctions against Iran. Recall that Evo Morales, when he was president of Bolivia, when he was en route by air from Eastern Europe back home, his plane was forced to land. There's a kind of law in the jungle and a piracy uh, that is now running amok 
But I would like to remind the hotheads in Washington that this can be a two-way street, that these war criminals like Colin Powell and George W. Bush, uh, they too can be detained if they choose to go abroad. So I would urge Washington to reconsider this piratical policy. Okay. Well, do you have any final thoughts as we put a period on this uh, conversation about the 20th anniversary of 9-11? Well, the pivot to China is already in motion. Uh, We heard this week that Mr. Biden has inaugurated what's called AUKUS, Australia, United Kingdom, United States, which is a complement to the Quad, Japan, Australia, India, and the United States, part of this encirclement of China policy. This Cold War II resembles Cold War I, because recall that Cold War I led to NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and CETO, the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization as well. But at the same time, it's striking to note that in light of the chaotic uh, evacuation from Afghanistan, the Europeans are getting very nervous about this so-called transatlantic alliance. Recall that President Macron of France some months ago said that NATO was brain dead. And both good news and bad news is that Europe is thinking about beefing up its military. The good news is that that might lead to a rift within NATO. The bad news is, is that a, an enhanced European military could mean more European interventions in African eternal affairs. There's one positive ray of sunshine, which is the September 7th virtual summit between leaders of the African Union, including President Kenyatta of Kenya, President Ramaphosa of South Africa, and Caribbean leaders, including Prime Minister Motley of Barbados. Uh, It was historic. It was a reviving of the Pan-African idea. In fact, that particular phrase came up more than once. There's going to be all sorts of cooperation between the two blocs, including a direct air service, including cooperation on COVID, cooperation with regard to oceanography, since so many of the nations are bordered by the sea. And they want September 7th from this point forward to be uh, honored as an historic landmark and milestone in Pan-African affairs. And I would hope we take that up in the United States of America. Okay, well, we'll definitely keep watching that story. I'm always looking for something to uh, leave on a positive note for sure. I've been speaking to on the ground geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you so much for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter, where we have started to post the shows again. You can also follow me on Instagram at Esther underscore Averum. That's E-S-T-H-E-R underscore I, be like Victor, E-R-E-M, like Mary. The podcast is on all your podcast platforms under On the Ground with Esther Averum. The music we play this hour included Animus Vox by The Glitch Mob, Rain Dance by Nana Vasconcelos and the Bush Dancers, Next Movement by The Roots, and our theme music is A Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averum. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.